Welcome to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Don Latin is an American journalist who has been exploring the interface between psychedelics and religion in America since the end of the 90s. His books include Shopping for Faith, American Religions in the New Millennium, co-authored with Richard Camino and Josie Bass in 1998. Following our bliss, how the spiritual ideals of the 60s influence our lives today, published in 2003. Jesus Freaks, a true story of murder and madness on the Evangelical Edge, published in 2007, and The Harvard Psychedelic Club, how Timothy Leary, Ram Dost, Houston Smith, and Andy Weil killed the 1960s and ushered in A New Age for America, published in 2010. Changing Our Minds, Psychedelic Sacraments, and the New Psychotherapy. His most recent book is God on Psychedelics, Tripping Across the Rubble of Old-Time Religion, published in 2023. This book explores the emerging integration of psychedelic mystical experiences into mainstream religious practices. He has been an adjunct faculty member in the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and for two decades was a staff writer covering religion, spirituality, and psychology at the San Francisco Chronicle. In addition to his published books, his work has been widely published in many U.S. magazines and newspapers. Don kindly took time from his busy schedule at the MAP Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver last June to record this interview for the Brain Forest Cafe. Don, welcome to the Brain Forest. Welcome. Very good to see you, Dawes. It's great to see you again. And uh, I'm looking forward to this interview and just catching up in general. Uh So you professionally, you've been the religious writer for the San Francisco Chronicle for many decades. Well, the religion writer, because I'm not necessarily religious, I'm writing about the subject. The religion writer, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, right. It's, slight, it's only a few letters difference, but there's a difference. It's a critical meaning. difference. It's a critical difference, yes. actually, yeah, because yes. I'm not promoting any, especially when I'm writing for the newspaper, <clears throat> right. promoting any religious agenda. I'm a journalist, you know, right. secu- I'm a secular journalist. I haven't actually written for the Chronicle since, as a staff writer since 2006, but I did spend 25 years as the religion writer at the Chronicle. Okay, and then you no. went freelance after Yeah, that? and since 2000, I, I basically worked for the, pa- for the paper as a religion reporter from like the 80s, early 80s to 2006. Mm-hmm. Um, the great downsizing of American journalism, you know, I took a buyout. They paid the old guys to go away, you know. Right, <laughs> right. They've slashed the staff of every newspaper. The ones that actually know how to write. Yeah, and that they were paying a semi-decent salary. <laughs> right, you know? right. So, uh, but there was a, there was a nice kind of way out. You know, they paid us to they paid us to go away. Yeah, I haven't worked in the newspaper game since 2006, but I've been you know freelancing a bit for the paper, but also for magazines, but mainly been focusing on you know books. For the last 20, basically like 30 years in the newspaper business and 20 years more on Meridian Books. And in your career, your faith was important to you and the religious life was important to you. Psychedelics came later? You you were writing about religion before you wrote about psychedelics? Yeah, I wouldn't actually say my faith was important to me as motivating why I was a religion writer. I was really... Uh, coming at it as a secular journalist, I, there were just a lot of good stories. So I was writing about, you know, all kinds of religions. I mean, I started writing more about new religious movements in the 70s. You know, that was the de- decade of the infamous cults, right? Mm-hmm. Correct word. Right. The correct phrase is new religious movements. You're allowed to use cult with like Jonestown and things now. But right, right. It's kind of a derogatory word. I like the word myself, but you have to be careful how you use it. 
So I did a lot of uh, reporting on, um, you know, different new religious movements, including some that came out of the whole counterculture of the 60s, right? And, you know, the Hare Krishnas, you know, Scientology, all that. And, of course, that culminated with Jonestown in 79, and I did some of those stories for the paper. Right. That was when the newspaper decided that they should have a full-time religion reporter again, which they hadn't had for like 10 or 20 years. They thought, who cares about religion in a place like San Francisco, right? Right. People forget that Jim Jones, leader of People's Temple, was not considered a crazy cult leader. He was a he was a Disciples of Christ minister. He was at the most integrated and politically progressive church in town. He was, you know, the chairman of the housing authority in Saturday. He was a inside player. So anyway, that's how they decided to start the religion, full-time religion beat again. So then I started covering everything, you know, from the Pope, you know, from from a from agnostics to Zoroastrians, you know, I, I wrote right. all of it. So um, when you started uh, writing about this, this was before you got, you were kind of a latecomer to psychedelics. Right? No, no, no. I was a latecomer to writing about them, but. Writing about them. Okay. <laughs> no, I was, I started, you know, experimenting with psychedelics in high school, in the 60s. Okay, so you're so, more or less. Uh, we're contemporary generation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the first time I tripped was in high school, and yeah. then I had some real revelatory and terrifying experiences, you know, in, you know, um, first year of college, which I write about in, in uh, Harvard Psychedelic Club and then afterward and then another book, Distilled Spirits. So, yeah, although, you know, looking back on it, I do see that the mystical experiences and some of the insights that I had, revelatory moments that I had on psychedelics, did get me interested in things like, you know, Zen meditation, which I practiced, and Tai Chi, and, you know, a bit of philosophy, you know. So I got interested in mysticism and religion partly from experiences that I had, you know, as a young man on psychedelics, and also partly because there were just a lot of good stories that weren't being told. Mm -hmm. And not just the mystical side, but, you know, the whole rise of the religious right, in the 70s and early 80s, you know, the, that, that whole thing was getting going, and controversy, various controversies in the Catholic Church, and, you know, so there was the whole abortion politics, so there were just a lot of good stories right. to, to cover, and they really weren't being covered in a systematic way in San Francisco at the time. So, a lot of reasons why I got into being a religion reporter, but psychedelics were a part of that. And they were important to you before you started writing about religion. Yeah, uh, yeah. You had had experiences and yeah. so on. Becoming interested but in meditation. Were, were your early psychedelic experiences, were they mystical experiences? Were they, I mean, were they, in that sense, were they religious experiences or? Yeah, at the time I wouldn't probably have called them religious. I would call them mystical for sure, you know, uh, connecting to this kind of a, of a non-dual I'm not sure I even used those words back then, but, you know, yeah, your classic all is one, you know, unitive kind of state of consciousness. I had some amazing experiences, you know, with tripping with friends and girlfriends and merging and becoming one and, you know, some wonderful uh, experiences with, you know, my tribe at the time. Uh, with, you know, LSD, also later with MDA, not MDMA, but MDA before MDMA and mushrooms and you know, uh, like a lot of us who came of age in that era, you know. Right. And it was it was mystical. It was kind of an eco-mysticism, you know, that sort of well, what your brother would call with the ar archaic revival, right? Was, right. Did he coin that term? Uh, I think he probably did. Yeah. Uh, basically, it's a, a re-enchantment of the world, you know, that's right. kind of how I see it. And, and, you know, would you call it, you could call it animism or whatever, but that sense of that, you know, which you've written and thought a lot about, of course. Dennis, I did get, you know, glimpses of that. And also, you know, some very terrifying experiences. And, you know, as you know, these substances can fuel that. I can also fuel paranoia and grandiosity and all kinds of delusion, delusion sorts of things. Yeah, yes. as Oxley said, they're heaven and hell. The, the medicines are not trustworthy yeah. in the sense yeah. that you can't, you know, they're they will tell you a lot of things, but you need to, you need to you know, you need to look at it from the cold light of reality, sober reality. Exactly. A couple days after the experience. Uh, and, so and. Does this hold up? Yeah. Or is this, you know, delusion? Right. And, but it, and, and also having, like, what's different now with the psychedelic scene is now people are, you know, being more skillful and intentional about having a guide or a friend or a therapist who they can, you know, discuss these experiences with, including the challenging ones. 
or having a community like a psychedelic church or a, a right. 12-step fellowship that's open to psychedelics or a men's group or a women's group or what some people start calling communities of discernment where people can discuss these experiences together, maybe trip together or maybe just talk about it together. Right. And that's what I'm writing in, in God on Psychedelics. That's really what a lot of these these new groups that are emerging now are, 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 are doing. People are having their own experiences, but they're gathering together to share them and process them. Yeah, or sometimes they're having the experiences together. Yeah. Like the, the, the one of the churches that I profile in the book is called Sacred Garden Church in Oakland, and they are... They're very, and they're, you know, there's a lot of psychedelic churches popping up. Some are more, in my opinion, legitimate or sincere than others. Right. That particular one, I think they have really good tensions and they're very careful and cautious. And they, you, you spend a, people don't just show up and trip. I mean, they get to know you, you get to know them. There's accountability. If there's any kind of an issue with, you know, sexual behavior or whatever, there's a, there's an ethics council. Yeah, they're 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 because of the some of the recent scandals in this space. They're very sensitive to that. I mean, making sure people are even comfortable for touching you while you're uh, uh, in an altered state, just on the on the arm or something, because there've been a lot of you know well, there's been a lot of abuse of that, of course. So there are all kinds of different different communities uh, rising up. Yeah, in the psychedelic space. Well, it seems like the you've kind of you in some ways you've. Uh, dipped into some of these. You've been a bit of a dilettante. I mean, you've tried these different... Yeah, yeah. I, I guess you could call it... Delicate. I mean, dilettante kind of has a negative connotation, but... That's um, true. It's but my, I sort of see it more as... I mean, I'm really coming into it as a journalist, uh, as a uh-huh. and sort of a sociologist, because I do have a degree in sociology okay. from prestigious so, yeah, University yeah. of California at Berkeley. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, undergraduate, but anyway. No, I see, my, I see what I'm doing in the book as both a particip- participant observer journalist. I try not to make it all about me. I'm really mostly telling other people's stories, but in order to understand it, I think you have to go there mm-hmm. in the way they're going there, like in a community with them or with a therapist. That's what I do in the book. I I joined the, this one church, Sacred Garden Church. I'm not involved in it anymore. It kind of wasn't for me in the end. Nothing to do with the church. It's just stage of life that I'm in. But to really get an understanding of how it works. Right. Yes, I, I get this feeling from the, from the book that you're, that, you know, a religion has long been important to you since before, maybe even before psychedelics. So the, uh, the, the community that comes from religion is what seems very important to you. And so when you're doing psychedelics, you're sort of exploring these different communities. They use psychedelics, but, you know, the attraction is for you that it, it, it's a community that might fit, you know, your, your preferences. Have you found what? Or, or have you come to the point where... No, no, and I, you know, I really, that, which, that's not exactly accurate what you said. I mean, I'm, I'm really coming, coming into it more as a journalist. I mean, yeah. I, I'm, oh, I was open to the possibility that this might be a church that I would want to continue to be a member of. Right. But it wasn't because I'm, A, I'm not, actually, I'm not a joiner. I'm not a joiner. I'm not a joiner. I do have a... I, I do have a, I, I can do spiritual group. I have a meditation group, nothing to do with psychedelics. Right. That I'm involved with and have been for, it's a small group of people, you know, like for more than 10 years. So I have that, nothing, to, but that's really nothing to do with this. We, we, it's sort of a mix of Zen Buddhism and Christian mysticism, the way we structure it. But it's, you know, I mean, I might I'm probably the only one who'll even talk about a psychedelic experience in that group. So that's really, if in terms of my spiritual practice I have, or a community, that's, and I write about that at the end, in the end of the book, even though it's nothing to do with psychedelics. I, I, was, I was sincerely open to it, and I kind of, you know, the, a lot of the psychedelic exploration I've done on my own, the other has been on, has been on my own. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was open to trying it in more of a group context, in a decidedly religious or kind of churchy way, just to see how that would feel. Yeah. Right. And to describe it in the in the book, do you feel that a psychedelic experience, to uh, you know, is validated by being a mystical experience? You can have psychedelics that are 
experiences that are not mystical experiences. Sure, sure you can. You can have psychotic experiences. You can have paranoid experiences. You can have grandiosity. Yeah. Uh, you can have uh, all kinds of experiences. But you can have so other positive and boring, boring, boring. It can even be boring. Even boring. <laughs> But that might uh, be a side that you've done it enough when it gets starts getting gory. But right. What do you think? Well, I don't. I, 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 if it's boring, you should probably increase the dose. That takes care of that. You know, I guarantee you, it won't be boring. You know, double the dose. I right. think you'll have lots to pay attention to. Easy for me to say to hand out. I'm not. I'm not a reckless user. Yeah, I'm not either. I'm actually pretty cautious. But uh, partly because I, you know, have a background as I read about in the book and other books of being in recovery and having, you know, a history of being a you know alcoholic and cocaine addict, and I love to get high, Dennis. I mean, I'm not going to deny it. I love it too much. That becomes pretty clear here. <laughs> yeah, you you enjoy your alternate I do. That's I do. okay. That's, well, it's not for me. It's actually not okay. But I'm, I'm not judging any people. But if you have a you know, if you have an addictive personality or you've gotten in trouble before, I think you have to be, even with psychedelics, you have to be careful. You have to be cautiously, I'll speak for myself, I have to be careful. I, uh, it's hard to imagine getting addicted to a psychedelic. They do say, I guess, that ketamine can be kind of reinforcing. I think ketamine has probably the highest abuse potential. Yeah, yeah. but and typical but, but, mushroom you know, or Well, people get into doing MDMA a little too much, I think. Possibly, possibly yeah. that. Yeah, 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 but you seem to—you seem like you're a seeker. You know, you've had the experience of psychedelics, but you're looking for the appropriate vessel, you yeah, know, ritual vessel that's satisfying to yeah. and have have these things happen. I mean, part of the bigger picture that I'm trying to—the bigger bigger story I'm trying to tell in this book is about this kind of shift in the religious landscape. Forget about psychedelics for a minute. Mm-hmm. You know, the fastest growing religion in America are the nuns, not the N-U-N-E-S, it's the N-O-N-E-S. And right. these are people who are, you know, spiritual, but, but not, not religious. Not religious. Right? And these are often people who have fallen away from the religion of their uh, ancestors or their parents or their childhood and are not interested in doctrine and dogma and denominationalism but they but they still may believe in god or a higher power or a cosmic consciousness or over the ground of being however they want to describe it and uh are looking and are sort of seeking and and are more interested in spiritual experience than religious belief that's um, the biggest trend in american religion right now and I guess I, I kind of fall into that category myself. You're, the, you're spiritual but not religious? Yeah, I actually call myself a skeptical universalist. Uh, okay. And yeah. by that I mean someone who believes that there is, there's wisdom in all religious traditions, or all major religious traditions. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of corruption and hypocrisy and divisiveness and grandiosity and de- using religion as a means of social control. That's all true too. That's the skeptical, right? So, but I try to be, and then the, in the book, I you know I try to be open to and understand mystical experiences in all faiths, and also looking at how the psychedelic experience can inform that. I mean, there's so many people, as you know, in the psychedelic world who were maybe interested in Buddhism or you know shamanism or you know various forms of like Hinduism, you know, who may have been brought up as Christians and Jews, and they've dropped that and they're not even aware many people aren't even aware that there's a mystical tradition within christianity and judaism that could inform or uh uh, help people understand these experiences they're having so that that, i'm looking for those kind of people in this book so you both you so you have and then they also have the first two chapters are about this interesting study at johns hopkins and nyu which hasn't been published yet Uh, roland griffith is, is, is leading that uh, that study well, to take religious professionals and give them two uh, supervised, relatively high-dose psilocybin trips. And these are people who are psychedelically naive, have never tripped before. Right. To see how it affects their, well, their personal life and their belief about the Almighty, their God, and how they, their, how they practice pastoral care, how they minister, minister to their flock. It's a really interesting idea. 
And while it's not been published yet, and it's been taking a long time, I did go out and interview three or four of the participants who were willing to talk about it, and I profiled them in, in, in the book. Two of them have started organizations to promote psychedelic experimentation within Christianity and Judaism, two different organizations. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that many of the people in this book, the book that you talk about are, you know, they're religious professionals, and but they've reached a point in their career where it's not satisfying in some ways. And then they, they like have it. their psychedelic experience. And, and then they seek, a, you know, they go to another phase where they try to, you know, merge the two. They try to develop some, you know, variation on their practice that includes psychedelics yeah. and, and to enrich it. But then also something that comes up in this book and comes up many times is this perception that psychedelics are inferior in some ways to genuine religious experience. Like they're they're not genuine. They're right. Psychedelics can open the door toward a genuine religious experience, but they in themselves are not a genuine experience. Or yeah, th that, that idea is certainly out there, that it's too easy, or it's a shortcut, or that it's not in a, a broader context of a tradition or a philosophy. I mean, the famous line about that is from Houston Smith, you know, who worked with Leary and Alpert in the early right. 60s, and, and, and he never, he was a, you know... He was a Methodist minister. He was a claimed author of comparative religion, but he'd never had a mystical experience. He'd written a lot about it mm -hmm. in different faiths. So the, he, that's why he, he was working with Leary and Halpert, and he became very disenchanted very, fairly quickly with what well, that whole scene in the early 60s. But he, you know, his conclusion was that, yes, these experiences are authentic. The actual experience of the mystic, the mystical experiences are authentic. But the question is kind of what do you do with it? You know, I mean, it, it, the difference between altered states and altered traits, right. altered states of consciousness versus altered traits of human behavior. Are these experiences making you a more compassionate, aware, loving but person? You can do all that outside the context of a religious community. I mean, you can take what you learn sure. in psychedelics and change your traits, change your behavior, and it, it can be like, almost a secular thing at this time. That's true, of course, of course. But he was, one of the things he was looking at, and I'm kind of asking that same question here, is more like in a community setting, you know, like, is this a real, authentic, quote, church? I think this notion, the perception that somehow psychedelics are a, a shortcut, you know, that it's the easy path to enlightenment, I really think that, that may be, but I think in some cases that's a misunderstanding. You know, I mean, if you look at ayahuasca shamanism, if you look at what it takes to become a curadero, that's not an easy path. No, not in that context. No, no. I mean, the the experience of ayahuasca is central to it, but it it sure is not an easy shortcut. It requires a lot of discipline. So I think that I, I think that religious people, not necessarily you, but religious people are quick to de to devalue the psychedelic experience and point out, well, this happened, but it wasn't in the context of a right. faith or right. religious practice, although many people have psychedelic experiences and they take up Buddhism or meditation or other practices. It, it leads them to, and maybe, Maybe that arises from this intuition that maybe there does need to be something more. There's something that has to be, there has to be a, a structure or a vessel. And I think, you know, to continue the practice, I and mean, then you see these churches or these religious type structures growing up around psychedelic experience, as Leary and Alper told us early on, it's all about set and setting, and that's part, that's part of the ritual vessel that you create for these experiences. Yeah, to, yeah. To, uh, I mean, there, there's obviously a lot of suspicion and distrust of psychedelic experience or drug experiences among, you know, organized religion, Christianity. I mean, going, you know, of course, you know, the cross and the sword and the, the colonization and the repression, of, that that's obviously there. 
it's not, but it's not just about psychedelics or sacred plant medicines. I mean, organized religion is afraid of mysticism. Uh, no matter how it's generated, exactly. people get their own ideas of the divine and, you know, uh, right. or prophecy, and they go off and they, ch I mean, that's what, that's how religions evolve. I mean, that's what Jesus was to it, right? I mean, there's a, there's, there's a life cycle of religions, and yeah. like there's an expression that mysticism, that the critique from the organized religious standpoint is it begins in the mist, it has I in the center, meaning it's selfish, it's self-centered, and it results in a schism, mysticism, mysticism, right. which right. is true. I mean, all history of religion are prophets rising up, challenging the authorities and starting their own. Genuine <laughs> encounters with the mysterio tremendo is almost, by definition, that's going to be disruptive, you know? Exactly. And it does seem that many of these established religions, I mean, the last thing they want you to do is have a genuine mystical experience. This is not encouraged. Right. That's up to the priests. Right. You know, and they don't have them either, but right. they can right. believe that they do. But they don't want people to have these genuine encounters with the other. Yeah. You know, they want... They want it to be an encounter with something that's, you know, sort of codified. And, and but it, that's changing, Dennis. That's, I mean, the reason it's changing is the churches are in free fall. The attendance yes. and affiliation is in free fall. And right. the people that are open, the religious professionals, the clergy, the rabbis, the seminary professors, who are open to this, it's not necessarily that they're trying to fill the pews again. I mean, they may, they're, they may be thinking of, about a post-institutional Christianity, Christian mysticism. So there's some very interesting things. It's not as simple as it used to be, and they're just against it because of these reasons we've talked about. Right. And there's sort of a, it's just the beginning. It's this avant-garde of clergy doing this. Right. You know, this book is about 10 years ahead of its time. It's really, <laughs> I mean, that's, it's just starting to happen, but yeah. it's happening. It's, well, hap it, it's it, happening. I mean, there are a number of things that, that are happening now that uh, are I mean, people wonder, or at least I have wondered, you know, why is membership in churches, uh, you know, why is it falling so precipitously? Why are people turning away from the faith? I think they're turning away from it. My own perception is they're turning away from it because it's spiritually hollowed out. Yeah, it's lifeless. It's, it's, it's lifeless. Yeah. It's bereft of meaning. That's, people long for meaning. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not lifeless for everyone. I mean, an, an, I mean, a lot of the churches that we maybe consider more conservative, like the Pentecostal Christian churches, they have powerful spiritual experiences, and they may be interpreting that ways that we don't necessarily appreciate sometimes. Right. So it's not, you know, you can't generalize. I mean, Pentecostalism is one, is certainly an enlivening spiritual experience, right? That's true. That's not the only reason, though. I think that's a factor. But, you know, a lot of the reasons that religion is declining is because it's a generational thing, you know, for one yeah. thing. But yeah. there's always been generational shifts, so that doesn't quite explain it. There's just so much uh, divisiveness now in the culture and in the churches. Yeah. So the churches are arguing about you know, abortion. There are, you know, there, there are people on both sides in churches, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, women, you know, feminism, gay rights, you know, all, the whole culture war thing is dividing churches like it's dividing the, cult, the larger culture. So people are just, they don't want to go to church and hear that, right? Mm -hmm. So they're splitting, you know, like everything from the Southern Baptist to the Methodists, you know, they're, they're just, they're fracturing. In, in, because of the so there's that part of it, and also the scandals, like in the Catholic Church, of course, the scandals over you know sexual abuse of you know children and teenagers, and the cover up by hypocritical uh, you know bishops and prelates. I mean, that has alienated a lot of Catholics. Yeah, all, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of reasons that people are. are I mean, as a Catholic, as a person born Catholic and raised Catholic, you know, I rejected Catholicism around the age of twelve. You know, which is, I think, when many adolescents come to the... I, I did, too. It was Presbyterianism, but it was the same thing. Yeah, this just doesn't hold water. This is, But even more so, I feel like, you know, that the church, uh, partly very much because of the scandals and all that, as well as if you look at the history of Christianity, I mean, you know, the... I mean, Christianity, mainly Catholicism, but Christianity as a whole you know, has to accept responsibility for essentially the genocide of indigenous people. 
you know, I mean, somewhere between 100 million and 800 million people died because of the doctrines of the Catholic Church. And when I sort of, in you know, appreciated that, I felt, this institution doesn't have any moral authority at all. Why shouldn't they be telling me what's good or bad? These right. people are evil. But I think you have to differentiate between the there's the church, right, and then basically the church becomes part of the power structure, right? right. The Roman Empire, right, adopting Christianity. So it's, I think you may, maybe you would have a different view of that if you went and let, went back and looked at what Jesus was actually saying, or you looked at some of the gospels of like the Gospel of Thomas, which is a very mystical expression of of which your, which, which, part of right, 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 of course, because it because we were talking about before it challenged back then and the way it was the first century right. challenged the powers that be. But th those teachings are still there and are available to people that want to re-examine it. So it, it, maybe part of it is do you throw out the baby with the bathwater? You know, I think. It was, it was really empire you're talking about with the genocide, yet the right. church was certainly part of that. The cross and the sword were together, but it was really more the, 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 the empire that, and, and the corruption of the message of, of, the, of religion. Right. It, it was a corruption, but as a result, I, I think religion has lost much of its attraction for people because oh, it's some widely mistrusted institution now. Sure. You know, it's lost its, uh, much of its moral authority. You know, another issue I've, I've had with religion, you know, in, in my own process of kind of rejecting it, I mean, there's, there's always been this dynamic oppositional relationship between faith and science, between faith and knowledge. Re religion insists that you must have faith. To my mind, as a person inclined towards science, faith is like, okay, faith is you're being asked to believe something without any evidence, basically. You're not supposed to question it. And yet the scientific stance is question everything. I mean, you construct theories, you construct hypotheses. You don't believe them. Right. They don't become but, articles of right. faith. But don't people, people do this to demolish. Don't people do the same thing when they go down to South America and they have an ayahuasca trip and then they just, they just latch on to all those those ideas absolutely and they do the same absolutely thing, you know i mean it's and this this is this is a mistake this is this is this is one of the problem with the uh globalization of the ayahuasca you cannot we're not indigenous people and however much attracting the beliefs there are around ayahuasca and the ritual and so on i'm not a peruvian you know, I'm not a, even a mestizo. I, it would be ridiculous for me to try to, you know, practice in that traditional sense. I think that there is a, an emergence of a, you know, a neo-shamanic ritual, you might say, may borrow religious elements from indigenous shamanism or even Christianity and incorporate them into something new. Yeah, we know more about this than I do, but it seems to me that there's a such a sort of a ridiculous romanization of Ooh. indigenous spirituality. Yes, and 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 really a exaggeration of the extent that maybe sacred plant medicines played in the larger sort of Native American spirituality uh you know it's it just and, and as yeah. you know you know the, the the shaman was it was the one who would take who would take the medicines and interpret for you there, you know it's been this sort of like the way americans look at buddhism right if we were a serious meditation practice we're in asia you know the the laity aren't meditating the only the so and there's this there's this appeal of the exotic yeah. and, and there's you know yeah there uh, is. And, and i think there's as much blind faith in that is there is in Christianity. Right. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I agree. But I, I think, I mean, the beautiful thing about psychedelics is among many beautiful things, but the thing is it doesn't demand belief. It blows away belief. It blows away belief. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What it demands is courage. Yeah. You, know, you have to have the courage to trust yourself and the medicine and the circumstances enough to take that leap, you know, to smoke the pipe or drink the brew or whatever. 
and then surrender to it yeah. and let it let it happen yeah. after you've taken every that, step you can to for sure for thing. sure that that actually reminds me of one of the stories in in, in the and got on psychedelics is one of the research subjects at Johns Hopkins, a Lutheran pastor in the suburbs of Omaha, one of the most conservative areas in the country, right? Right. Uh, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. He took this psilocybin, and he says, and in my interview with him in the book, that it blew away his belief in some in some ways. Right? He experienced such a larger vision of the divine it didn't fit into this little box this little small right. box that he'd made and then he had what he called a crisis of faith after the after the study how could he go back and just do the same old thing preaching the doctrine of the lutheran church every sunday right and it was uh it was something that he really struggled with but he actually turned it around i thought in a kind of a beautiful way he said now he feels, and he didn't actually tell his congregation about this. He didn't preach about it. He kept it private, right? Mm-hmm. But in his own mind, this was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he said he felt more like a chaplain. Because a chaplain is someone who has to be, who ministers to people of all faiths or no faith, right? right? Right, So he felt more like a chaplain that he was more interested in hearing what his congregation thought about the divine than telling them this is what God teaches. Mm-hmm. It made him more open-minded, which I thought was a beautiful story. You know? yes, and he stayed in the church. He's working in the church. He's not become a psychedelic evangelist by any means. Most people in his congregation, even though he's named in the book, I don't even know he did this, right? Mm-hmm. So that, to me, that was really interesting. And that, if there's a way that psychedelics can be a source of revival or renewal in the church, that's, I think, a good example of it. Yeah, and this, this may be the... This may point the correct way to integrate psychedelics into these Christian-oriented religious practices, or even Muslim or Judaism. That yeah. that you know this chaplaincy idea is interesting because it doesn't have to be even denominational. Right. By definition, it's, it's not. Yeah. It's not denominational. So you can like minister, like you say, to people of all faiths or no faith. You right. meet people where they're coming from. You can use your psychedelic insights to, you know, genuinely help them, but help and maybe assist them through psychedelics right. and gain right. insights, even though they may not even be, they may not think of themselves as religious. Right, because chaplains are, are helping people in the midst of the real traumas of life. I mean, so, death, you yeah. know, a hospice work, people getting divorced, you know, or... or right. Or, you know, in the emergency room at the hospital or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. So this may be the model for the modern-day post-psychedelic shaman priest is some kind of a chaplaincy-like role. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a, a, a like I say, a lot of the people, a lot of the mainstream clergy who are interested in this, they're not talking, they're sort of looking at a post-institutional church in some way, mm-hmm. you know. And that's already but happening. That's called an oxymoron. Can you have a church with? Well, no, it's it's not. It's happening. I mean, the whole the the small group movement. Yeah. You know, which yeah. includes like house churches, small groups of people. It also includes like you know men's groups, women's groups, Bible study groups, twelve uh, step fellowships, and yes, psychedelic churches. Right. But are these churches? Well, they are fellowships of yeah. It depends how you how you define church, but yeah, they are. What I said, which is called communities of discernment. They are communities people, of discernment. Yeah, the they're, they're, they're people who are getting together to explore these experiences together. And some would say that's really what the early, early church was or might have been. Who knows, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I'm interested shifting the subject a little bit. You know, your psychedelic experiences are probably more ancient in human experience than any religious experience. Would you agree with that? Well, in other words, I, I, were I, psychedelic, we were considered psychedelic before there were, yeah, maybe I, I, had to create religion in order to deal. Yeah, well, I don't really subscribe to the whole, you know, the, was it your brother who came up with the stone ape theory or the, yes. I don't know oh, if there's really. He and I conspired on it. But. <laughs> yeah. We'll give him credence for <laughs> no, the bad part. Well, I, that's an interesting idea. You know, I don't think it's really... And, and the whole pagan continuity theory, which Brian Marieski writes about in his book, you know, 
I don't think it's so simple that, you know, religions came out of people, you know, gobbling mushrooms. I don't think it's that simple. I think mystical experiences, however they're generated, right? I mean, I think what, one of the things that people in the uh, book who are open to the idea of psychedelics, they think they resent this, this, this idea that all mystical experiences have to be explained or reduced to psychedelics. There are all kinds of ways that have mystical experiences that have nothing to do with psychedelics, which led to the creation of communities and then churches. It right. doesn't have to really be that it all started with, you know, mushrooms or something. That could be a factor in some cases, but there's actually very little evidence of a, of a, of a continuous tradition of that. Oh, you know, use of, of, of use like this whole, hey, yeah, I mean, that there's like a, a secret kind of, you know, tradition that's been going on. No, I, I don't, I, I don't think that very necessarily. Speculative, ar archaeological evidence. Oh, we found a little possible trace of ergot in this thing that shows that the original community well, Jesus was no, like, no. you know that's what that, that's the popular idea that's the popular idea but and, I, I don't think and, and it's insulting to religious Christians because it reduces it all to, to drugs and it's not it, it's mysticism it's mysticism however it's generated right. is what inspires these early movements yeah Right, and some of those mystical experiences are psychedelically. They they could have been, yeah, they, they could, could have been. been. And sure. I think the the you know we're not really here to uh, unpack the Stone Age <laughs> theory, but I, I do think that based on what we know now about you know I'm not saying that religion came out of it necessarily, but what we know now about the climactic conditions in Northern Africa you know, two to three million years ago. There were cattle there. We know that from fossil evidence. There were hominids there, because we know that from fossil evidence. And so this triad between the cattle and the people, the people that lived there were probably eating the cattle, herding the cattle, and eating mushrooms that grew out of the cattle dog. If right, you know right. any particular, any warm tropical pasture in anywhere in the tropics where there are cattle and lots of rainfall, you'll find psilocybe cubensis. This is just part of the ecology. So these things were probably there. And But, you know... Yeah, but we don't really know. We don't well, we know really they were know, there, but we don't, we don't know that that is what led to the rise of, you know, what, religion or consciousness. I mean, it, obviously, people had these experiences that were revelatory and transformative then like they do now. I mean, that's right. pretty obvious. Right. But reducing religion to it is what some people take issue with, you know. Not. Yeah, yeah. Religion is... Much more complicated. Much more complicated. And involving s social fact, all kinds of things, you know. Right, right. But psychedelic sacraments can be at the center of religious practices or you have to build them around yeah and and that's what's so interesting and what i write about in the book is that people are starting to do that and find new ways of doing that both within the mainstream churches and these new churches that are like the sacred garden church in oakland which is kind of rising up at they call it the church of no dogma you can believe whatever you want in this church basically you just have to be open to the possibility that psychedelics can open you up to divine presence however you want to define it there's that there's the mainstream clergy that are open into can this can psychedelics be a source of renewal in the churches and the synagogues and if so how and and then of course you've got you know a lot about this you know the syncretic movements like you know Santa Daime and UDV right. Right. you know which are their own kettle of fish right right uh, and they're coming up here and it, they're changed so there's all good I mean that's what I try to do in the book you know look at you know sort of just surveying this vast you know kind of a rising of uh, some kind of a new spirituality, new communities around this. Right. How do you think this is, what do you see this going in, say, 50 years? What's the landscape going to look I have no idea. <laughs> I really don't know. Okay. I mean, and I could pretend to know, but I don't. Fair enough. <laughs> what would you like? I'm not a, I'm not a prophet. <laughs> what, would you, what would you like to see? How we would like, how would you like to see this evolve? Well, I, I think people are going to keep having religious, I think religion in whatever form will continue to be important to people. Yeah. Psychedelics will be important to people. Yeah. They basically separate. It's not so much what I'd like to see, but I think it's, it, what is happening is this arising of new forms of community. And you can call it worship, you can call it exploration that are open 
to the use of psychedelics. And it, uh, something will emerge out of this collapse. I mean, there could, and it could just, there could be another religious revival, and we could be back up to the levels of church affiliation attendance that we had 50 years ago. That could happen too. That's probably most likely thing to happen. If you look at the history of Christianity, the ebbs and flows, you know, people forget that the 1950s were an unusually religious decade, right? And unusually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That, that it, that's not like religion was climbing and then in the 50s and then the 60s and it all collapsed. It's been, you know, right. up and down, up and down. In a cycle. Yeah, and then that'll probably continue and how psychedelics are going to get thrown into that mix. Who knows? But now that we have the clinical trials and the opening to using these therapeutically, and even more so, the decriminalization campaigns. So it's a really interesting time. You know, there's a lot more opportunity to do this exploration in places like where we are right now, Colorado, or Oregon, or all these cities around the country that have decriminalized sacred plant medicines. I mean, it's a really interesting time to see what's going to arise. It is opening up on the local level. That's, yeah. That's where the change is going to take place. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I would like to see more of that kind of thing. I think the decrim, I mean, the decriminalization movement has their problematic aspects to it. Sure. Such as, you know, like peyote comes up as one of these that is over harvested and perhaps the right uh you know that the the decriminalized people should step away from that and just right. okay well, there's a real split in the movement not, over that yeah there's a split over that but i think that decriminalization creates the opportunity for a lot of these their you know quasi ceremonial shamanic wellness whatever they're into sanders operating under the radar you know, because they're illegal, if those could come out into the open and decriminalization will make that possible, they could come out into the open. So then effectively every community could have, you wouldn't even necessarily call it a psychedelic center, but it would be a, a spiritual community center or a, a wellness center, improvement, self-improvement center above which different practices might include taking psychedelics, but you could use their, what they offer without ever consuming psychedelics. You can go there and learn meditation or yoga, nutrition. Or, yeah, or kind of like you have now with places like Esalen Institute, and, you do, yeah. and which, you know, yeah. early on in Esalen, psychedelics were part of the mix, and then for various reasons, they kind of downplayed that. Yeah, they're opening up, opening at least to talking about it. But that's that's the that's the model, you know. I mean, that's what Rick Doblin is talking about with maps, you know, or retreat centers, you know, mm -hmm. centers. It's already happening. It's happening. You know, it's 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 here. I would I would like to see them these things sprout up, you know, in North America, so people don't have to go to South yeah. America. Well, it's happening in Oregon. It's happening in Colorado and California. There's a there's a bill. That's already passed the state senate. Of course, it did last year too. But if they can get through the assembly, and it's 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 happening. California could be could be next. Yeah. And then then you know it's like sort of like what happened, of course, with marijuana. You know, state by state. Right. Right. So ultimately, this is you think this is a healthy thing. It certainly seems healthier than the authoritarian. Well, yeah, I do. I mean, there's the shadow side. There's the corruption. There's the money. There's the sexual manipulation. There's the power trips. It's, it happens in all religions, including psychedelic religions. Yeah, it's <laughs> but yeah, not just psychedelic religions. It's 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 not about psychedelics. It's about human nature. <laughs> exactly. Although you know, when people are taking some of these drugs, they are more vulnerable. Uh, you know, suggestibility, manipulation is it in some ways easier. Sure. And we're def we're already seeing some of that. Um, yes. And uh, that's why. Actually, that's why it's good for it to come above ground, because when it's underground, as we've seen in some of the scandals involving some of the underground therapy training folks, right? Right. When it's above ground, uh, there could be some kind of accountability. That's one of the things that I think the psychedelic movement can learn from mainline churches is that they do have more accountability. You know, there's, a, there's some oversight. You know, because they have their scandals too. No, they have their scandals too, but of course— 
but at least there's a there's a structure and, and more lip service paid to accountability. <laughs> but how how accountable are they? All this stuff, you know, the Catholic Church has gone to great lengths to you know. Yeah, that's true. Diet, that's a, true. That's true. You know, I mean, supposedly there are methods mechanisms for accountability, but they're imperfect. I guess. By their nature, they they have to be imperfect, you know. I mean, at the end, it comes down to the fact that we're monkeys, <laughs> you know. And I mean, we're halfway between apes and angels. Right. That's that's the thing. There are a lot of good things about about the love, spirit of that and a line of very dark elements so, uh, of human, you know, personality. So. Well, I hope that this book is uh, is uh, is well received. Well, th thank you. It's a small publisher, but we're trying to get the word out. God on psychedelics, tripping across the rubble of old time religion from Apocryphal Press, available where fine books are sold. Yes, <laughs> yes, and we'll we'll put it up as a podcast, uh, yeah. and maybe that'll get you ten or twelve additional. <laughs> Sales, you know. But. I'll get you your 10%, Dennis. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That and four bucks will give me a good latte most places. This is right. So, yeah. Well, so It was great talking to you. Yeah, yeah. Very good talking to you, too. I wish you all success with this. Likewise, with your new academy and your podcast. And uh, I love that. I love the title, Brain Forest. That's you like that? I, I love it. Yeah. I can't claim it. And that came up with that. Okay. Yeah. Very, very good. You can't claim it, but you can ride it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, uh, I, I hope. Uh, we hope the podcast will be will be successful. Yeah. We're just rolling it out. The message yeah. will come out. Okay. Yeah. So There's just so Is there anything there. we didn't? No, I think we covered I think we covered it. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Great. Thank you. Thank you. listening to Brain Forest Cafe with Dennis McKenna. Find us online at mckenna.academy.